Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. weather here in New York and it's uh, I was comparing temperature with with uh, with Mike in San Diego and we're actually about five degrees or six or seven degrees warmer than San Diego so for us New York dwellers uh, not going to be too often when we can claim that uh, that we've uh, got nicer weather than Mike does but today might be one of those days um, in terms of commentary on oil gas, LNG, Metcoal, bodies in general, I hope I don't chase anyone out of any positions. But I think this shortage or emergency or what have you is overdone. First of all, the forecast, which I get access to by being a board member of Stargas or Star Group, are not good for more than two or three weeks. I mean, start, you know, mean and Petro delivering heating oil, you have to have a good weather forecast for the next two or three weeks because you got to schedule trucks and, and you know, the last thing you want to do is have uh, a customer or many customers run out of oil. Uh, so, you get the best forecast being backwards we can and we get it from several people and then we compare uh, I don't even see it much just I just talked to Paul or, or uh, Jeff Roosman, and, and uh, I get what they're looking at. I have to tell you, being in the heating oil business or an investor in the heating oil business for more than 30 years, for a month from now or two months from now or three months from now, are, are change all the time. In other words, the, the forecasters are doing the very best job they can. And <clears throat> weather forecasting is used a lot by... Uh, Commodities traders, uh, you know, when the forecast changes, you can you can see it in the futures curve for things like natural gas. But they are forecasting now a warmer than normal winter all over, not just in the Northeast, but the Southeast, the Midwest, the South, all the population centers. That would be welcome news now because there's no question that just the way you see all those ships piled up outside of some in uh, you know Long Beach and Los Angeles, there is a there is a, a a real problem now with having enough uh, gas, coal, uh, uh, wind, solar, just to keep the grid up. I, I think in almost every case, you go to any part of the country, the Southeast, the Northeast, the Midwest, and you talk to the People who are responsible for keeping the grid up, they are enormously worried. And they're worried about having a situation like what happened in, in Texas during those five days where, in effect, the independent system operator, ERCOT in Texas, just couldn't keep the grid up. And so people were in the dark. 
in the cold for three, four, or five days. You know, it, um, so why do I think that is a soluble problem? I think if we start to get some early warmer than normal weather, you'll start to see it in the gas storage additions. People will relax. You know, when people are expecting a storage, they hoard. When they relax, they'll stop hoarding. As long as we don't get some extraordinarily cold weather, by the time we get to January, February, March, all this stuff about uh, hydrocarbons, oil, gas, uh, NGLs, propane, you know, will all be old news. In Europe, where the LNG price has been extraordinary, I mean, it's... LNG price got to like $40, you know, which is equivalent to the U.S. gas price at five fifty. Uh, I think most of that, from what I've read and from talking to people who have more time to spend on it than I do, that's mostly been Russia holding back gas. And Russia has a particular issue here. There's a pipe. Most of the Russian gas historically has gone through the Ukraine. They built these two pipes. Uh, North Stream 1 and 2, down through the Baltic to not be as dependent on moving gas through the Ukraine. When Trump was president, he campaigned against North Stream 2 being built. Biden, you know, captures a lot of criticism for approving that and canceling Keystone, playing to the progressive wing of his party. But North Stream 2 is ready to get commissioned. Now, you you have a split in the in the German elections no one won a clear majority. So it's going to take them another couple of months to straighten out who gets different cabinet officials. And there may be a certain amount of inertia in Germany. But I can't imagine $30 LNG, the Germans won't find a way to put Nordstrom 2 into commission. I think that's what they're looking for. So a little bit of a break on the weather and Nordstrom 2 going in. I would think that, that again, by the time we're to the you know, January, February, March, uh, all this kind of panic over very high uh, gas and prices and LNG prices will, will be old news. I have a significant position in a company called Ramico, so we're pretty familiar with the Metcol business. Metcol business, again, is in a total, total panic, uh, which is terrific because of very high prices if you if you own Medco mines. Again, half of all the steel is made in China. China, no question, is in a slowdown. It looks as though the slowdown is being engineered by the leadership of the Communist Party, the president and the premier. Not clear. Before, they would want to have 7 or 8% real growth in GMP to provide enough jobs. I mean, they have a very large population. Now they seem to be wanting to assert control of the party over all industrial activity. And for whatever reason, they seem willing to go from growing at 7% or 8% a year to 3 or 4% a year. And that doesn't seem to bother them. That is not good news for commodities because the commodity boom that we experienced 10 years ago to two years ago when it started to slow down, basically driven by China. Now, that calls kind of a special situation because in Australian politics, well, 
a lot of Australia's iron ore goes to China because China doesn't have internal sources of iron ore. But because as a part of Australian politics, they take a position that the World Health Organization has not done a sufficient look at where COVID-19 came from and has not considered whether or not it was a leak from a lab like that lab in Wuhan. Chinese take offense to this, so they couldn't they couldn't embargo iron ore because then they their steel industry would grind to a halt. But they decided to embargo metal from from Australia and threw the market into uh, a fair amount of confusions. It took two, three, four months for the metal that had been going from Australia to China to work its way into Japan, Korea, India, and and uh, maybe as far as Europe. Uh, but that has happened. And in the meantime, Metcoal has gotten very high price. I mean, the index in Australia for a ton of, of Metcoal in a ship has gone from like 110 or $20. This would be a ton, not short ton. It's now 350 or something like that. And we've seen some incredible pricing because China has to get coal from somewhere. Some of the coal that is shipped from, you know, West Virginia all the way to China nets back to West Virginia at crazy prices, like $300 at the mine, prices like that. So, and that's up from like 80 or $90 a year ago. So we have these dislocations. I think they'll work out. I think all that supply constraint, the fact that uh, car companies can't get chips. All these things, I think, will work out. On the other hand, if you look at it from a macro point of view, they're about the need for like 10 million more workers. And the number of people working there is 4 million below uh, the pre-pandemic level. So uh, there really is a labor scarcity in every business. I mean, most of them I read about, if it's oil, gas, coal, stuff, I hear about it from the guys running the companies. In, For example, in drilling rigs and, and completion crews and whatnot, it is impossible to put a new crew together. I mean, they're just not there. The other worrisome thing is that your turnover is much higher. In other words, if you're paying full rate and you have good equipment and you have medical benefits and whatnot, you'd expect your turnover to be like maybe 5% a year. Because everyone's bidding for employees, even very good places to work with loyal workforce, your turnover is 30 or 40% because people get bid away. So labor is very scarce. When the Federal Reserve says the inflation numbers they're seeing, you know, four and a half, five percent on their favorite inflation numbers, it's transitory. I certainly hope so because, you know, if it's if you're measuring inflation by by what it what it costs to maintain your workforce or to go out and bid for additional workers to make up for the fact that you turn over now thirty forty percent a year, that doesn't seem transitory now. So, what does this all mean for for owning equities? The equity indexes are, you know, close to a peak, and uh, your bond has moved from you know, 110 or 120 up to 165 or so. The Federal Reserve has certainly stayed with their quantitative 
isn't too long. Now, in November, they've carefully telegraphed it. They'll go from buying $120 billion of $80 billion of treasuries and $40 billion of mortgage bonds. They'll go to some lower number. Maybe they'll cut it by $20 billion or something like that. They're way late doing that. They are probably influenced by the fact that the Biden administration, which wants desperately to retain the House and try to pick up seats in the Senate, is trying to use its ability to reappoint the chairman and other key uh, figures on the board as a way to try to have them keep money easier longer. So the Biden administration is running a big deficit, and monetary policy is way too easy. And I'm hoping this translates into a, a better economy so that they can do well in the November 22 midterm elections, you know. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll backfire on them. But in terms of equity investments, what Mike has turned out, she's just been terrific. You know, we, we had this idea about, well, six weeks ago or something. So many companies have come public. Why not go through the companies that become public and try to find another NVIDIA, for example, which has just been a terrific company and a terrific stock owned. And he's done it. I mean, you know, every, every week we have a couple more companies, and we have a couple more companies this week. When you pull these companies apart, software as a service, in order to make the numbers work, you have to you have to make an assumption that half of the sales and marketing and R and D is can be excused. In other words, to get to any kind of reasonable free cash flow number, you got to say they'd still grow if they cut their sales and marketing and R and D by half. I don't know. I mean, a lot of money's been made by looking at these kinds of companies. I think it's better to accumulate these companies, learn about them, which, which with Mike's help, we, we are doing, and then assume that at some point, you know, equity values will be less and, and, or, and, or they'll grow to a point where they don't chew up all their cash flow doing sales and marketing and RT. Maybe look at NVIDIA. Or you look at Alphabet, or you look at Amazon. Uh, well, Amazon for a while did stuff like that. But I mean, these companies, these very successful companies, were able to pay all their marketing and R&D expense and, and have free cash flows. So, you know, I know it's being a bit of a stickler, but uh, it seems to me that's just a safer way to think about investments you want to acquire or investments you want to hold. And with that, I chewed up way more than half of my 30 minutes. So... And turn the rest of the the twelve or thirteen minutes we have left over to Mike. So over to you, Mike. All right, let's go ahead and get started. I so I want to cover a couple of things today. First, we'll go over just some high-level semiconductor industry stuff and some details on Apple's latest processors, and then we'll jump into a handful of software as a services companies. But before we dig into those, I'm going to talk about vertical SaaS as a potential investment thesis. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, we will dig into at least four, maybe more companies that fit that box. And I think I've got a list of at least five of them that have IPO'd in the last year. So there's some some kind of exciting things happening there. So let's let's start with semiconductors. One piece of data that's kind of interesting uh, to look at is worldwide semiconductor sales. Just earlier this year, we peaked above where 
our previous record, which occurred in 2018 for global semiconductor sales. We're also seeing the amount of imports, both imports and exports in the U.S. of of semiconductors as of last quarter reached an all-time high. I think it's important because we're talking about supply chain shortages. It's not necessarily always a supply constraint issue. It's a demand caused supply constraint. So there's a case that can be made in semiconductors and in other parts of the supply chain that just supply chain is being more heavily leveraged than it has in the past. People are buying more stuff, whether it's semiconductors or Chinese stuff off of Amazon. So uh, that's something to think about going forward. So let's talk about Apple real quick. Apple launched some new chips for for their notebooks. This is important because they used to use Intel processors. And up until now, the highest end Apple computers still used Intel processors. However, Apple has launched a new chip called the M1 Pro and another chip called the M1 Max, which blow the existing PC-based and Intel chips out of the water. And they're significantly faster than the M1 chip that it released at the end of last year. So I think think they said 70% faster. So all of these chips are built on Taiwan Semiconductor's five nanometer node. Apple tends to, and their their path with M1 is likely to follow the, the mobile processor chips. So future versions of the M chips will go into the the second generation of the five nanometer node, three nanometer nodes that they're working on getting rolling for the end of next next year. So uh, the M1 chips, interestingly, in the past, they purchased directly from their, their chips directly from Intel, so they can select exactly the type of chips they want. One thing that's different today, when you go to order one of these new MacBook Pros with the, you'll have a lot more options for numbers of cores. And this is just sort of an interesting fact of semiconductor manufacturing that that I think is worth noting. Because Apple is taking full responsibility for the design, the production, and the sale of these chips, no longer are they purchasing just exactly what they ordered from, from Intel. Instead, there are approximately eight or 10 different options between the chips and the number of cores. The reason that's important is as these manufacturing modes get denser, there are error rates. And sometimes when they produce a wafer with a bunch of chips on it, some of those chips don't work. But by breaking them up into cores, they can still offer, for example, if there's an error on one of the CPU cores, they can sell the chip as a eight core CPU versus a 10 core CPU and use that as product product differentiation. That enables a company like Apple to do a better job of minimizing their cost of product and providing features that the customer is willing to pay for. So just just an important thought for for Apple's purposes, it means they're gonna have more margin on their products, approximately $100. Mike and NVIDIA and ARM, would they owe any licenses to someone like ARM for that, or are they just doing that strictly with their own, their own? Uh, so uh, Apple does have, a, yeah, Apple does have a license with ARM. Uh, I believe it is a perpetual license. Good. Sorry for the interruption. Continue. No, it's okay. 
Let's uh, let's move over to SaaS because we've got seven minutes left here. So high level SaaS, the market median SaaS multiple. Remember, SaaS businesses are valued on a multiple of revenue. Uh, this is calculated by taking the enterprise value and dividing it by the next 12 months forecasted revenue. So the overall median is 15.3x. The top five are and the, the median of the top five, five is 61.9x. So the, the thing to keep in mind here is that prior to COVID, really prior to about three, three months after COVID, the overall median was closer to 10. And so it's up by about 50%. And there's a couple of reasons behind that. Remember that, uh, as we've done, discussed in the past, the next 12 months growth is the number one determinant of the multiple at which a company trades. So within the SaaS industry, we're seeing much higher growth rates than we had in the past. And that's a lot of what's driving this increase in valuations. How sustainable that is, we don't really know. And obviously, analysts make expectations on growth that go out five years or 10 years. And you know, the farther out we go, the less likely those are going to be accurate. Nonetheless, I think software as a service has been extremely revolutionary from my personal perspective. It encompasses a portion of our investment thesis. And, and one, of, one of those theses that, that, that I look at a lot is the concept of digitization and ultimately software becoming the operating system of business. So where a typical business would be more made up of people, processes, and policies, much of that work, not only the, the the processes and policies, but also some of the work that's being automated is all being done by software. So I believe software will define what the future of businesses are. And that has driven our investments in companies like HubSpot and, and uh, Salesforce. I, I'm going to talk today about vertical SaaS. And the, the reason I'm going to talk about it is it's a potential disruptor for companies like Salesforce and HubSpot, and it may be a source of future growth and kind of some really interesting niche areas uh, to take a look at. So what I mean by vertical SaaS is, I mean, uh, software solutions designed for a particular industry. So it may be a a suite of software solutions designed for restaurants. There's a company called Toast that we'll get to later that does that. The could be a suite of solutions for service companies, whether that's contractors or plumbers or, or businesses like that. They may use a product like Service Titan or that Service Titan's public. There's a, another one called House Call Pro that's private still that, that uh, also has a similar business. So all of these businesses typically have started by doing one thing really well and really important to those particular verticals. But what's happened in the meantime is a whole other category of businesses emerge, and that's really APIs as a service. And those APIs are that are capable of doing many different things. Uh, the most obvious one is payments, so payment processing. So companies like Square or Stripe that offer APIs to enable companies to take and make payments, uh, whether it's custom within their software or integrated elsewhere. Other ones include payroll and background checks for employees, email marketing 
stuff like uh, Twilio for sending messaging to customers. So there's a whole plethora of these developer tools that have come out in order to make it easier to do more things. And what we're seeing in vertical SaaS is an expansion in the breadth of products that each of these companies offers. So they're going from what used to be in the case of Toast software to take orders within a restaurant to expansion into financial services, for example, where they can handle all of your payment processing as well. They also handle all of the uh, HR-related tasks as far as payroll, scheduling, all of that stuff is built into their software now as well. So Toast becomes a almost no-brainer from the perspective of the restaurant industry. Instead of patching together a bunch of different stuff, they can go to this one solution pay for it and basically have their entire business running on that operating system. So I think I'm, I'm going to stop here. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, a number of different companies. We'll try to pull together the, the two or three that are most similar to each other. And, and we'll go deeper on each one of them. Yeah, no, that's great. Just a comment, a closing comment on cryptocurrency. For anyone who's really interested in this area and hasn't, please uh, look at the recent articles on Tether. Tether now is $60 billion. It's supposedly matched dollar for dollar, and no one has a clue on where the $60 billion went. And so it, in effect, has taken deposits, made loans with absolutely no regulatory input. And generally, when this has happened in past, you know, kind of buildup of non-bank institutions, like, for example, in 08 or 09, where, where the mortgage market was financed this way, generally, it all comes to tears. So uh, I've never owned any gold. I'm certainly not going to start on cryptocurrencies now. But to the extent that you have 5 or 10% of your assets in, in these kinds of businesses or providing these services, please, please, please. Go on the internet and read at least half a dozen articles on Tether. So, if uh, if the thing does come to tears, you'll at least be uh, better informed and may be able to uh, see the signals before the uh, thing uh, comes unglued. And with that, everyone stay healthy. Uh, we'll be on a week from now. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.